Welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. Hosted by the editors of Writer's Digest, this monthly podcast features conversations with writing and publishing experts whose insights will help ignite your creative vision, hone your skills, build your platform, and get your work out into the world. Welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. I'm Editor-in-Chief Amy Jones, alongside Managing Editor Mariah Richard and Michael Woodson. If you've checked out our September-October issue of the magazine, you'll know that it's themed around sinister stories, and Tiffany D. Jackson is our cover interview for her new YA horror novel, The Weight of Blood. We were so taken with the novel and the story it told that we had to keep chatting. Um, We wanted to talk more about it um, and talk to Tiffany again. So we are pleased to announce The Weight of Blood as our next book club pick. And today we're thrilled that Tiffany D. Jackson is here to talk all about it. Hi, Tiffany. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great to talk to you again. So I wanted to start with the basics. Um, If you could give listeners a brief synopsis of the story, just in case they haven't read it yet. Uh, sure. So uh, The Way to Blood is my uh, basically my homage to Stephen King's Carrie. It is set in 2014 um, in a fictional city of Springville, um, Georgia. And it's about a girl named Maddie who has been passing for white at the behest of her very fanatical father um, until a surprise rainstorm exposes her darkest secret and leads her classmates to, I guess, uh, torment her. And the moment goes viral and some of the classmates worried about the school looking racist decide to host their first integrated prom. Um, But some of their classmates are not interested in changing traditions and they have one more trick up their sleeve for Maddie, but what they don't know is Maddie has another dark secret that's going to cost the entire town their lives. I feel like that is, we always talk to writers about creating like a great synopsis that um, will really capture people's interest. And you're an expert at that. Yeah. (laughs) That was perfect. Um, I, I have to give it I have to give it up to my like film background, honestly, because, you know, filmmakers, we have to like, you know, we have to give that elevator pitch and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So honestly, that's like the only way I'm able to even write books or think about write sure. books. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that this was um, an homage to Carrie, Stephen King's book, which I will admit I have not read. Um, but so what sparked the idea for this for writing this story at the beginning? Is this an idea you had in the back of your head for many years or did it something in the news spark the interest in writing it? So actually, yes, an event back in 2014 at a school in a small town in Georgia, they were hosting their first integrated prom. And I remember um, CNN had covered it um, and they did like a little like mini doc on it. And uh, for those, uh, for some background, because people were like, you know, this happened in 2014. Um, basically, some towns in the South um, in specific areas, they still host prom, segregated prom. So they have their quote, black prom and white prom. Um, and the only way they're able to get away with that is because the school the prom is not a school function event it's a community-based event and so the community were still upholding the tradition they had even when the school first integrated um and i remember working at the time and watching this whole news story about this school and saying like you know how like 
and watching all the people that they were interviewing and all of them kind of saying like, you know, yeah, we don't really want to change the edition. We're only doing this because the cameras are here. We'll probably go back to, you know, what it was, you know, as soon as you guys leave. And I was like, you know, how wild it is to see people hold on to those type of ideologies. Like, you know, they have no problem looking completely like ass backwards and racist. And I thought it was really interesting. And I'd been thinking about like, how do I bring this into a story? And I think at one point, um, many years later, I was talking to someone about how Carrie was my favorite, um, you know, horror film at the time. And I was like, man, I wish there was a way I could. And I like stopped talking and I was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so that's how the idea came about. <laughs> um, Tiffany, you are our closing uh, keynote speaker at the WD Annual Conference this year, and you mentioned um, I, you mentioned this was the first book you'd written in third person. Yes, yes. So I'm I'm curious, how was the writing process different for you uh, in doing this? And for our listeners who maybe want to play with different perspectives and are maybe nervous to try it, what advice do you have for them? I would say because I'm I'm very much a first person type gal. I've been right all the stories I've ever written were always like first person, because um, I like being in like the character's head and thinking about you know everything. And um, one of the things I realized I had to do was read a lot of mentor text that was already in third person to sort of like get into the groove of, of understanding what that would sound like. Um, and so it was a, a tricky transition for me, but I made sure that I read a lot of books specifically like long like fantasy books mm. that were all in third person and all um great at world building um because one of the best things about doing things in third person is you're able to sort of set a larger scene um and so that was one of the biggest things that i was trying to do was to make sure that i uh focused on like what everything would look like and be able to kind of get that bird's eye view that i don't typically get in uh first person and um a lot of horror writers will tell you and i didn't realize this, this is my second horror novel and i'm realizing now that writing horror in third person is much easier than in first person because third person allows you to sort of like play with like, you know, the monster seeing like seeing things from the monster's point of view or seeing mm. things that the character doesn't see. So you're like, you know, tense and like, oh my God, they don't see this coming. Um, so I think, yeah, it's all about um, kind of like getting into the groove of that mentor text. Um, Tiffany, you and I talked a little bit about this um, during our conversation back in May, but mm -hmm. um, I think one of the most interesting things that you do with your books and uh, especially with The Weight of Blood is that you utilize excerpts from kind of these third party perspectives. Um, so, for example, specifically in The Weight of Blood, we get podcasts and interviews and excerpts from true crime books. Um, and I feel like those really capture this idea of like, how a story changes um, from mm -hmm. when it's been told for the first time. And it really struck me as I was rereading this because uh, a large part of um, the um, like spark of this book is that viral nature of, oh no, the world mm -hmm. is looking at us and we need to change our behavior accordingly. Um, mm -hmm. 
So can you speak a little bit more about what attracts you to including those elements in your story and how it might have been different this time around because the story was already being told in third person? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I love using mixed media. I'm a mixed media gal through and through. This is actually a, a huge, the Way to Blood is actually a huge callback to my uh, first novel, which is Allegedly. And Allegedly had a lot of excerpts and transcripts and stuff from like the case as well too, and not necessarily a podcast. So I wanted to take the opportunity to try that. Um, I'm also, I love podcasts. I love kind of getting those nitty gritty details. I'm like, a, you know, a huge research nerd at heart. So podcasts really like, you know, those are my jam. Um, so to be able to kind of call back to sort of like that opportunity to sort of give a broader lens of what's happening in the story, um, I wanted to take that chance. Um, and especially because I think, uh, one of the best things about writing thrillers and horrors and stuff like that is getting a reader really involved and making them feel like they're a part of the case or a part of the mystery. And that's like one of the best ways to do that is through like podcasts and mixed media to make them kind of like think on their own. Um, it's a great way to sort of like, um, I call like save the saggy middle mm. um, because you don't have to info dump <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm big, I'm not big on info dumping. I'm not big on like, I, I rather like it be, if we do have to info dump, we are doing it in a creative way, in a very succinct way. And so there were times where you learn a lot about like, let's say Maddie's father um, and, you know, a podcaster kind of read, um, you know, an excerpt from a book and it was like a couple, like a paragraph and you told, yeah. and you basically learn everything you truly need to know about this man without actually having to sort of like go through the motions. And so it helps with the pacing. It helps sort of like kind of move things along and like, okay, we know about this guy right now. What? Um, so I think that that's one of the best ways that I can say that. Um, do I think everyone should use podcasts? No. And I think there are a ton of other creative ways to sort of like, you know, give that sort of character development. But this is just something that I sort of lean towards, um, especially being like a thriller horror writer. And I think one of the things you talked about in that interview with Mariah was it also helps when you like end a chapter on a cliffhanger and then mm -hmm. you jump to that yeah. excerpt from something you're like, I've got to keep reading because I need to know what just happened. <laughs> but you get that breathing room to like internalize the the cliffhanger, yeah. As well, like as a as like a writing tool, I love that. Um, it just made me want to keep flipping the pages. I didn't realize I was doing that in all of my books until I had an event <laughs> with R.L. Stein. Um, I think last summer, the summer before last, and you know. Um, I was his moderator and I was kind of like, you know, and, the, and someone in the audience asked like, you know, how do you keep people like reading? And he said, end every chapter with a cliffhanger. And as someone who like read R.L. Stein growing up, like incessantly, mm -hmm. I didn't realize I completely <laughs> adopted this whole swag. Mm -hmm. And so I, <laughs> like, I don't like, and it was a, it was a zoom and I like, I my whole mouth <laughs> dropped and I was just like hearing him say this. And I was like, <gasps> Um, like that's one of the best things about like mentor text, right? Mm -hmm. Is um, you you can sort of understand the way people tell story and like make it your own, like put your right. own spice into it. So one of the things that I do is and try to end everything on some type of cliffhanger and give you that like that, that breathing room 
in mm-hmm. a sense of a podcast or something that kind of like take your mind away from it, but also like you're still like buzzing, like, no, I need to know like what's happening mm-hmm. here. Um, some people actually in reviews were kind of like, oh, these podcasts, I couldn't read them fast enough. I was just trying to get to the story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I know. I think they added so much. You know, because like yeah. you said, they get that information in there, but they also hint at what's to come. So it's like totally it it follows the cliffhanger, but then it's its own cliffhanger too, because you yes. want to know what what come like what are they referring to? Yeah, how did they get that exactly. information? <laughs> and I think um, for me, like especially when we're talking about young adults um, and today's young adults, like I think there is this like really important thing we have to keep in mind that like they're growing up online and they're being viewed in ways that might not be necessarily true to who they are. And they're kind of learning a performance. And so like, I think it's so important, especially um, you, you spoke a little bit about allegedly and that one um, I think had the same kind of weight to this as in The Weight of mm-hmm. Blood, where how I was experiencing the character um, was not e- exactly aligned with how these third-party elements were discussing them. Um, mm, and then yeah. I kept saying to myself, you know, these are kids. These are young yes. people. And you're talking about them as if they are a case study, as if there's something to be looked at and judged mm. on a different scale. Um, yes. So that's, I think it's really important to keep that in mind when we're, especially I feel when we're talking about horror and thriller, um, which can right. have heavier, darker themes. Um, and so. there's always <laughs> that like element of, um, I, I find that when I talk to a lot of kids about like stories and stuff like that, there's always this element of like feeling they're misunderstood. And so it's always fun to kind of like see things from their perspective, i.e. like Maddie and Mm -hmm. in The Way to Blood, but then you get this like adult perspective and like, you know, they completely missed the mark and it sort of like aligns with the idea like, you know, yeah, sometimes people aren't aren't going to understand you, but you still have to live in your truth. And so I think that's one of the biggest things that I like tell kids is like, yeah, I mean, adults get it wrong too. I think Mm -hmm. it's important to show that adults aren't perfect human beings and, you know, allow them to understand that as you grow you're still growing i mean i'm a whole super senior at this point in my life and so i think it's important <laughs> to understand that you you are a continually evolving human being that you know it's not like you don't turn perfect as soon as you turn 18 and i think there's this misconception that you know adults don't make mistakes and stuff like that so i think that's important for us to you know kind of give them that like perspective like yeah adults are looking at you and be completely completely wrong about who you truly are, and that doesn't inv- invalidate your feelings and invalidate your experiences. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Maddie and like knowing who you are. So I want to talk about her for a little bit because when I picked yeah. up the book, um, I, uh, I again I hadn't read Carrie, so I had no background for um, for the inspiration or the homage part of it. But I kind of expected. I expected Maddie to know that she was passing as white um, and that she was in on that secret a little bit. Yeah. And yes. then in some ways she knew she had a secret, but she didn't really know what that was. Um, mm-hmm. What made you choose to have her not know her history 
And when did you know that that was the right choice for the novel? Or like, was there ever a draft where you kept her in the dark um, for longer? Um, I think ultimately she knew that, ultimately she knew that she was black um, or Mm. that she, you know, was biracial. Um, But I think the issue was, uh, you know, she experienced like through her father, who's sort of like, you know, hammered into her that this is a bad thing for you to be and that you need to keep this dark secret. And she even at one point in the novel experiences or sees someone else experiencing things in a wrong way um or she was tormented and she was like if i'm tormented just being like you know quote unquote white what will they do to me if i if they actually knew the truth and so it became this um obsession in a lot of ways for both maddie and her father to keep this dark secret and i think it really calls back to you know there were so many african americans who passed as white um look during you know the um reconstructive error um and even for further um because they were at some point trying to look for a better life and better opportunities um but if you've when you know that you are something else and that you know you could be killed for doing the things that you're doing like killed for like you know sitting in like an all-white restaurant or you know a whites only um or drinking out of a whites only fountain um you just live in this chronic fear and so that's one of the things i knew i wanted to focus on is the chronic fear that Maddie was feeling at all moments during her entire like existence. Um, and that was something that I wanted to sort of expound upon because the idea of passing is, is incredibly frightening. Um, there is something inherently, um, or I want to say there's something like just incredibly terrifying about the Mm. moment about like your decision to like pass as a white person and like you know maybe marry a white man who doesn't actually know your history and then still bear children and you're worried about they may actually not look like you um there is so much fear in that and that is something that um, maddie truly experienced throughout this novel but then Mm -hmm. when she did sort of like when she was exposed um i.e her hair got wet and you know her classmates like instantly knew um there was denial there at some point, like from her father was trying to like pretend like, you know, none of this ever existed. But then she started to like question. She started to like kind of like think about it and be like, you know, well, hey, like what what would happen if I was black? And her, you know, it became a moment of her starting to explore that blackness, um, but still being like fearful of it as well, too, because mm-hmm. she didn't know, quote unquote, how to be black. Well, and that kind of connects to another thought that <clears throat> I had that it's not necessarily a question, but I also read White Smoke recently, one of your other novels. Uh Um, And in both that book and The Weight of Blood, like the adults try to keep these teens from finding out like critical information about Mm. themselves, about the town. Mm. Um, And, you know, for whatever reason, they're trying to like protect the kids or they just don't want the secret coming out. They don't want bad publicity. Um, But the kids always find out the truth. Like they always know how to um, use the tools at hand. And in this case, it's, you know, the internet, you know, (laughs) if they want to know something bad enough, they will find a way to figure it out. And I just, I love that that is um, presented in like, in both of those, in both of those books. I mean, because that, that's ultimately a thing that happens in real life. Like kids always will, will always have like, an, like 
their instincts are much sharper than ours. Like mm-hmm. they know when something is wrong and they know when something is up. They have like this like inherent energy about them uh, because I guess they're like very much a raw palate um, in a way. Yeah. And I think that they they pick up on things and they may not know what it actually is. And so one of the things that I feel strongly about is to not keep kids in the dark, mm-hmm. um, to sort of, you know, not completely expose them to everything, but to sort of allow them to under have an understanding of it. Um, and that's one of the things that I don't feel like we should like sugarcoat shit uh, to make it easier for them to swallow. We should have them actually like understand, have an understanding of the way like the world works or the way the world could be truly unfair to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would hopefully make them more compassionate humans um, leading to a better society um, overall. Um, Amy just mentioned like um, a town's history and you at the beginning mentioned that this is a fictional town and I think that it just feels so real and tangible and um deeply atmospheric in a way that like is so important to the success of this story Mm -hmm. and I just want to know like how did you I guess like put yourself there in a place where like it is I think it, it it leads to sort of like the the podcast parts and the and the um other interview parts that make this town feel genuinely real that like I found myself googling it to be like did she visit <laughs> this place but I'm just curious like how do you pull out those details and then enrich the story from the place that they're living um so to be honest I didn't um I went to high school in a semi small town I went to high school um up um in Westchester mm. um like in Cortland Manor area um my parents live um in Buchanan which is right near uh, Indian Point so there is a uh a power plant right there so I knew what it was like to live near a power plant so that was like one sort of like tidbit um but I really didn't know anything about like small town like true true small town living so it was a lot of like research that had to right. like happen um hilariously I know nothing about like sports towns like i know nothing about sure. like friday night lights so <laughs> i had i i ended up like watching the whole series to kind of have an understanding Amazing. of how important like you know high school football is to an mm-hmm. entire town i was like why are they worried about like high school football like why is like the gas station guy like talking to the coach like it was really like <laughs> I, <laughs> I had to get a crash course in like football in general sure. Um, to understand like that aspect. So it was a lot of research and like kind of compiling a town into what I like from that research into what I believe what would be like kind of sort of the elements of that. Mm. And then specifically, um, you know, uh, like in black history, we also have like, we know about sundown towns, where towns where like, you know, you cannot be out and about or in that town after sundown. And so a lot of us know sort of like those restrictions. So I was able to kind of add that sort of element to it where, you know, this town also had that history. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, it, 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 it played a huge dynamic into into the way uh, the community worked together, um, where there was this understanding, like, yeah, we get along, but at a certain point, you need to go back to on the other side of the tracks and, you know, 
stop fraternizing or like, yeah, our school is integrated, but you know, you don't belong here. Um, so a lot of people have had that experiences. So, you know, being able to really kind of take that and develop that into this one town, like taking bits and pieces from different people's towns uh, was the only way I was able to sort of like create this, um, which, you know, I got to give it to like a lot of like the world building that I've been reading in some fantasy novels and some like, you know, even like old Stephen King novels, mm. like having that like, you know, mentor text and knowing how to really like plant a character in a place that actually like the place is its own character in a way mm -hmm. um, is definitely truly important to the writing process. Yeah. Um, so in the interview that you did with Mariah for the magazine, like, I want to talk about the ending a little bit. Um, okay. You talked about the ending of this book being like bloodier and gorier than your other books and not wanting to disappoint young Tiffany. Um, <laughs> and considering like whether young Tiffany would say this is corny <laughs> about your book. And yes. I was wondering about that because – like the older I get and the more removed I get from myself as a teenager, I feel like the less I trust myself to know what mm. I would have thought about something um, mm. compared to like how teens would react to something nowadays. Do you ever mm. worry about that potential disconnect when you write or do you have like ways of working through that with like beta readers who are teens or um, does your publisher help with that in some kind of way? You know or are what? you better connected um, than I am? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, uh, these last couple of years of the pandemic has really definitely uh, disconnected me a bit because before I used to, you know, I used to be in schools. Um, mm -hmm. One of the biggest tricks that I, you know, when everyone asks me, like, how do you like get a teen voice? I always say, like, you know, I live in Brooklyn and I ride the subway. Mm -hmm. um, I, I literally ride the subway from like two to like four. And all you have to do is overhear like every single conversation. My my apartment building is within walking distance of three high schools. Like I see teens all the time. So that's basically the biggest way to kind of like keep that. And plus I still do like school visits. Um, I travel sure. around the country. I, I, you know, I, I talk to people. So the pandemic really put um, a big halt on that um, because I wasn't seeing kids. I wasn't even seeing kids like on the train anymore. And so I felt like a huge disconnect and, you know, suffered some like pretty hard writer's block, which I never had mm. before. Um, so I will say that um, one of the ways that I sort of still like get back to young Tiffany is thinking about like going back to some of the movies I used to watch mm. um, and like kind of remember some of those emotions I was having like mm -hmm. or so or like reading something that I had like questions about and didn't have like the specific answers at the time. And it wasn't like a time to actually ask those questions. So even like... Um, Definitely like my first book, allegedly, you know, that talked a lot about like girls in prison. And I never had those answers when I was a teenager. No one really kind of talked about it. It was sort of like hush hush and no one like, you know, dove into like, you know, the nitty gritty of it. Um, and then for The Way to Blood, you know, I thought about like, you know, going to proms and being into, you know, what it would be like to, you know, being an interracial kid and like those mm -hmm. like i always had those type of questions so being able to like go back and like sort of dive into that and explore that and read texts that talk about that um, i was able to answer a lot of my own questions so a lot of times like mm -hmm. you know i will sit back and like watch like i feel like i watched a movie called um 
recently that was, I didn't realize how problematic it was. Um, uh, this book, this movie called Not Without My Daughter um, <laughs> with Sally Fields. Oh. And uh, it's a really old movie and it's based on like a book. And the movie was just a little like, like I had so many questions. I remember watching it when I was so young with my grandmother that I went back and watched it. And I was kind of thinking about it again, about like the idea of like being so passionately a passionate mother. Um, Cause when you're a kid, you're just kind of like, you know, why don't you just leave her? Like, bye. Um, <laughs> like save, save yourself girl. Um, but now that I'm an old, I'm an older woman, like, you know, I, I don't have a child, but I have a dog. I, I can see myself saying like, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine leaving my dog somewhere or my child, or my niece or my godson anywhere. Like, so there is something to be said about going back to previous works or previous things that you loved that you remembered and kind of exploring that inner child again. Um, Cause that's a lot of the things that um, I don't think a lot of young adult authors realize that they're actually just kind of writing to their inner child and answering questions for their inner child. And um, it's unpacking things. It's exploring things. It's like we're doing our own little therapy in a lot of ways. Mm. That's such an interesting way to look at it. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I even though like I'm a young adult writer, I have a huge adult fan base. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of adult women read my books. And they're always asking like, you know, when are you going to write for adults? And I was just like, like I, already you know, am. I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I do. And it's like, I already do. Yeah, um, Cause you all are reading it and it is satisfying something in you mm -hmm. that you never got a chance to really explore yourself. Cause we didn't have books like mine or like, you know, Donald Clayton's or Jason Reynolds. Like we mm. don't, we never had these type of books when we were growing up. We didn't have books that right. really talked about like real issues that like spoke to us. We had books that we didn't have books that like really described like where we were living at the time. I definitely didn't see myself on the page ever. Um, which is one of the reasons why I turned to horror in a lot of ways, because it was the only kind of like genre that gave me like just a, a glimpse at like the tension I was living through mm. like at the time. Um, so I think that um, when everyone's saying like, oh, you know, when you're gonna write for adults, I'm like, you already are feeling mm -hmm. it. You already like, you needed this and you didn't even realize mm -hmm. it. And you mm -hmm. like identify with these characters and there's and they're like they're 16, 17, like, like take a moment to think about that. Um, and understand like, you know, you still have so we all still have some growing to do. And so just recognize the fact that it's okay to not feel like quote unquote embarrassed that you're reading sure. this book that like doesn't seem like it's for you, but it's a thousand percent for you. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Jason Reynolds is the love of my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to put that on the record. Yes, um, I understand. <laughs> um, you do something in The Weight of Blood that I think is like exceptionally hard to pull off, which is that, okay, I want to, this is kind of, again, kind of ending, but not really, it's not really spoilery. You do it throughout the book. There are certain characters that survive the incident well mm -hmm. before we get to prom and we get to know that as the reader, like mm -hmm. through like the podcast interviews um, and such, but knowing that they survive doesn't take away from the tension at all. And yeah. like, cause it's kind of in a, in a weird state of reading where you're like knowing that they survived doesn't mean that they were like out of harm's way or that mm -hmm. they didn't weren't affected in some way right. um and so you're still very tense wanting to know what happened how did you decide which characters to incorporate in both uh what's going on in 2014 and also with michael and tanya trying to figure it out um in their present day i guess 
Um, I think I've always been in love with books that sort of like kind of spoil the ending in the yeah, very right. beginning because despite knowing what's going to happen, you still want to know how it happened. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was like a big thing for me, like in this book is that I want to, I want to tell you everything that happened real early. Like even the first page, like the first page is like a, a excerpt from the podcast. And mm -hmm. it literally says like, you know, basically everyone is dead. And so, <laughs> so there's no surprises. It's like, but it's more like how it happened. Um, and that's like kind of the journey is like the best part. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think one of the ways I wanted to make sure that the story sort of like lived um, is to not have every evil person or every problematic person in the book die um, because then there would be no lesson mm -hmm. there. Um, and I also wanted to like, you know, explore kind of like real life, like this, ha like sort of like paint this also for kids is to also know like, yeah, there's going to be people who are going to survive, like, like the good guys are going to die. Like some good guys are going to die and then there's some who are going to live. And it's not fair, but you know, how else will we find out about those stories? And I think it's unrealistic to sort of like, you know, oh, the villains are dead and then like the story goes on into a happy ending. Like that's just not, it's just not realistic. And right. I respect my readers, specifically my mm -hmm. teen readers too much to give them something that is just unrealistic because i feel like we tend to grossly underestimate what 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 teens what kids period can handle and so i think that that was a big part of the reason why i wanted to make sure that you know some of the problematic people make it at the end uh some of the heroes do not make it at the end um and i think that is 100 what life is all about as well too um i have somewhat of a follow-up before yeah. I'm so fascinated by that because then there's also that element of like we also don't know what happens to some people um yes. and for you like was there ever a moment where you decided like did you ever know for yourself more or did you keep yourself in the mystery as well I think um, at some point when I finished the book, I like went back and wrote myself like a little epilogue, like what would okay. I want to happen type of thing, um, because that is something that, you know, I've gotten a lot of feedback about from readers <laughs> is like, you know, my endings are so like gut, but like, you know, they're so like open ended. And, I, and I'm like, well, yeah, like <laughs> life is open ended. Like, you know, we don't we don't have all the answers. Um, but I think in this regard. I wanted to sort of like have that moment. So I wrote a little epilogue for myself and it's like, you know, maybe like a couple pages and I, you know, sort of felt like satisfied, like, oh, like, you know, if this was to happen, if I was to add this for the book, like it, but it never took away and never mm -hmm. like, it, it was just for like myself to kind of like know, like, you know, okay, there is somewhat of a happy ending or somewhat of something that like, you know, people, people move on. And mm -hmm. so I think that that was one of the biggest reasons why um, I do kind of like keep things open, you know? And then mm -hmm. when kids Absolutely. always ask, when kids, when kids ask me like, you know, Oh, is there going to be a part two? Is there going to be, you know, a sequel and stuff like that? I'm like, you know, this is the opportunity for you to write your own sequel. Like, what would you want to happen? Because I'm never like, no matter what you do, you're never going to satisfy everybody. So what would you like to have, have happen? And this is like a great, like creative writing exercise. Like, you know, what would you like to have happen at the end of the book? Like write your own epilogue and see what happens and see how you feel or like pass it around to your friends. Like I specifically love, I love fan fiction for that, Matt, for just for that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm a big fan 
like fan fiction girl um and like even like reading stories on like wattpad or like you know reading other people's like yeah like that kind of stuff i love to see people get creative um with work that's already out there well see this was gonna be my question because like the ending just fascinated me. I loved that, you know, there are some characters that we definitely know what happened to them. And then there are some characters where we get to imagine what happens to them and make Mm -hmm. sort of our own ending. But there, there's one character who um, appears like mostly off page. Like, I don't want to say how this person appears because I don't (laughs) want to give anything away, but um, like, She's a critical person, but we don't ever see her in right. the action. <laughs> and yes. I want to know, like, I want to know her life story. <laughs> yes. And so Ooh. I wonder, like, do you have a, like, a prequel or, um, <laughs> you know, something planned for this one character? <laughs> Oh, man. Do you know who that I'm talking now. about? Yes, I, yes, I do. <laughs> okay. I know. I Like, okay. once you see, yeah. Um, that would be interesting um, to sort of like explore her life. You're right. Mm-hmm. There is a character that is, you know, she's very, she's very much a part of the book, mm-hmm. but she's not there. Right. And um, that was actually kind of hard to do. Um, and admittedly, like I did kind of want that like bow at the end. Um, but I realized like it, it, it once again, it's literally like, I'm very economical with my words. Yeah. And I'm very economical about like, you know, what I want to happen in some instances. And so I think that that was one of those things that like, yeah, like I, I maybe I will like, um, eventually I'm going to post the epilogue that I wrote mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. on- online somewhere. Um, I'm waiting for like the you know, the Halloween season to be over. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so people have time and it's not mm-hmm. like a huge spoiler. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll post that somewhere so that people can like read it and like sort of be like, oh, okay. Yeah. And like feel good about the whole scenario. Cause yeah, I, un- I understand. I understand that question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've mentioned this a few times. You do have a background in film and television mm-hmm. and I can like really see this working like as a miniseries. Would you ever consider scripting this or any of your work and how much of your film and TV brain like is working when you're, when you're in the writing process, if at all? Oh, absolutely. I'm um, so uh, definitely, I've always been um, a screenwriter at heart. Yeah. And so I definitely follow the Sid Field, like, you know, script writing paradigm. Uh, which means that I write in three act structures. I, you know, have plot points um, and midpoints and, you know, like, you know, the moment of no return type mm-hmm. of situation. Like I always like I plot everything that way. I'm much more of a plotter than a pantser. Um, I I even have this rule, even when I like teach like workshops, I'm like, you know, if you need to reach your first plot point by by page 50 of, of any book that you're writing. Um, if after that, like, you know, you can do whatever you want, but like, if you, if we don't know what's happening by page 50, like, you know, throw the whole book away. Um, so I, I'm very like, I'm very adamant about like following these sort of like script writing rules um, and applying it to whatever I'm writing. Um, so would I, and, and then to answer your question, would I uh, script this? I would hundred percent. This is the one book that I feel like I actually can write a script for. All my other books, I, I don't think I can. Mm. Um, and mostly because I feel like those books, um, 
you know, one of the elements of like, like all my books are like very much like my babies, like, you know, mm. like, and, and one of the things that happens when you turn a book into a movie is like, you lose a lot of elements of it. And I love all the elements of all of my books. So I don't want to lose a character. I don't want, I want every scene to be there. So it's sort of like releasing the reins and I feel like other people would do a better job. So I'm always like, you know, someone else write this, someone else <laughs> kind of like take this on. Um, but for this book, I think, cause I was so, um, I was so passionate about the podcast and, mm-hmm. you know, I could see it more. Like I could see the things like I could, I should take out in mm-hmm. order to make it the best script possible. So I feel like this is the one book I probably can, but the other ones, I know I'm um, every book that like if anyone wants the option. I'm always like, go ahead. <laughs> sure. I'm not, I'm not going to like argue with you. Whatever you want to take out is totally cool. Like, yeah, I, I'm a bit more like, especially knowing like the film side. Um, and the TV side, right. I'm, I'm, I'm not too precious about it. Like, I, I know I can't physically do it, but I know I don't mind other people doing it. Oh, I can't wait to, can't wait to watch it then. I know, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Tiffany, this has been um, a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I really oh, love the book. Thank you so much for having me. Um, the other book that I read of yours, like, you're right, I am an adult, but fan for life <laughs> like <laughs> YA's for adults <laughs> yes Absolutely. thank you so much <laughs> alright well thank you again for joining us and um, hopefully we'll have you back to talk about your next book sometime for this month's writing prompt choose a book you've read with an open to interpretation ending write an epilogue that takes the ending in one specific direction Alternately, choose a secondary or off-page character from that book and write a chapter where their story takes center stage. How does the story look different from their perspective? Thanks for listening to Writer's Digest Presents. Visit writersdigest.com for more writing prompts, advice, and inspiration. Email us at writers.digest at aimmedia.com to share your feedback and join us on social media at Writer's Digest to share your thoughts about The Weight of Blood by Tiffany D. Jackson. We look forward to hearing from you.